And that, uh, welcome again, if you're just coming in this morning, glad you're here. Uh, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central Church, and we are a community of people that desire to be honest uh, about our lives, honest about our world while we rely on God's uh, grace to transform us and to move us out to love one another, to love our world uh, and the love that we've received from Jesus. And, and so I'm glad all of you are here this morning, uh, especially if you're a first-time guest. We're really, really glad you're here. Uh, we are in the fourth week uh, of our series in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, it's a book of the Bible that Herman Melville called the truest of all books. Uh, the author, known as the preacher, pours out his soul in transparency and in honesty, and he's asking the question, where is true meaning found? Where's true meaning found? I think the search and quest for meaning has always been at the center of the human heart. I mean, do we not all ask the question, where can I find true meaning? Well, the preacher has chased meaning in everything. He's chased meaning in success and power and sex and pleasure. He's climbed every mountain we could imagine peaking and has lived to tell us how it all went. And he summarizes it at the very beginning of the book in chapter 1 where he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's all vapor. Everything is smoke. You cannot grasp it. And if you taste something for a moment, it's gone the next. It's just vapor. Everything is smoke. We're being taught by the preacher that life is not always logical. We live it honestly and if we do so, we will see that life under the sun here in the real world is often frustrating, perplexing, and even infuriating. That life will expose your total incapacity to find true meaning on your own. The honesty and the vulnerability of the preacher is what makes Ecclesiastes a gift to us today. Uh, it's why uh, I would encourage all of you to, to invite people who might be questioning and wrestling with Christianity to come with you during this series on Ecclesiastes. I encourage you to bring your own questions and to invite others who have questions. This book is a great book for bringing our questions and letting the preacher lead us in those questions and how God might be answering that. The preacher, if you've been with us, you see is modeling and leading us into a wide range of emotions and questions as it relates to faith in God, leading us to see that Christianity is not a stick-your-head-in-the-sand type of faith. That in Ecclesiastes, we find anything but a naive Christianity. We find an honest teacher being honest about the real world, leading us to see where we can find true meaning. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4, Verses 1 through 12. This is God's word to us this morning. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought that the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who were still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no 
other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, and threefold cord is not quickly broken. Prophet Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray together. Lord, I ask that you would lead us this morning, that you would speak to us, Holy Spirit, through the word of God, that you would illumine our minds, you would soften our hearts, uh, that you would lead us to see that in you we have one that is well acquainted with us, that is our greatest friend, and that you would lead us to leave more focused uh, on you and your glory and others than we are focused upon ourselves. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, there's an old saying that you're not what you think you are, but what you think you are. Let me say that again. You're not what you think you are, but what you think you are. So let me start by asking you to be really honest. Whom do you spend most of your time thinking about? If you were to star in a movie where the constant dialogue that was happening in your own head was played out on screen, what would your private thought life be portrayed as? I would wager to say that every single one of us in here would be amazed at how much of our thinking was about me, about you, about self. And we're asking questions like, where am I going with my life? Am I really happy doing what I'm doing, living where I'm living? We're searching for meaning to my life. We view life through my eyes. What's happening to me? How do I feel? We go to sleep at night thinking about my past day and we wake up thinking about my new day. Let me summarize what the preacher has been teaching us for three chapters. This is what he's been teaching. He's been teaching that, that it is vanity to spend your days thinking about all that you need for a better life. That it is vanity to chase success at your job. It is vanity to chase academic acclaim, to think if you can read and study all the right things. It's vanity to chase possessions. And if you just get that perfectly decorated home or that hefty retirement account. That it is vanity to chase pleasure in alcohol or sex. That it is vanity to chase being remembered, to think you can leave a legacy because all of these things are smoke. The seasons, they come and they go and we cannot control of them. So instead of thinking about me, we need to think about our place under the sun, which comes by embracing the sobering reality that our day of death is fast approaching. And embracing these things will help all of us view life as gift, not gain. That's what the first three chapters are all about. That's a lot in three short chapters. Now, all week I've been thinking about the death of Kobe Bryant and his daughter and the seven others that died in the helicopter crash. All of us have been thinking about it to some degree because it's been all over social media and the news. Kobe Bryant, one of the greatest basketball players ever. Fierce competitor, 
Uh, Kobe had flaws like every human being, but he was trying to love his family better. He was making contributions to society. Kobe was loved and admired by many. At the Duke Pitt game on Tuesday night, there were 24.8 seconds of silence given to pray and remember Kobe, 24 and 8, his two numbers. Everybody is remembering and paying tribute to Kobe Bryant. Rachel and I were watching last Sunday night the Grammys, and Alicia Keys hosted it, and she kills it when she hosts the the Grammys, but she started out by paying tribute to Kobe because it had just happened that day a few hours before, and she started by breaking out into the song, It's So Hard to Say Goodbye to Yesterday, accompanied by Boys to Men, and it was a powerful moment. And throughout the night, people came on stage with tears and with much sadness talking about how much Kobe meant to them. And the host, Alicia Keys, throughout the night kept saying, in times like this, it's in times like this, referring to death and to tragedy, in times like this, we need each other. See, I think the news of Kobe and his daughter and the seven others rocked many of us, but I think what's been happening all week has been more than just their deaths. I believe that these eight tragic deaths or nine tragic deaths really have made everyone wake up to the reality that our day of death is approaching. It has been a cup of cold water in our face to the truth that no one is immune to death. And if we know our place under the sun, then I believe it can make a major grammatical shift in the way a person lives their life. Life becomes we, not me. As Alicia Keys said, we need each other. Here's the catch. If we're honest about our relationships with each other, they're not always joyful. They can be and are at times painful. So the preacher in chapter 4 is teaching us to live with this grammatical shift, we, not me, but also being very honest about the we, about our relationships, and shows us that relationships are sources of pain as well as sources of joy. So the first thing I want us to look at is the pain of we. Look at verse 1. It says, the preacher starts by saying, I saw or I observed, and this is a a repeated phrase throughout chapter 4, I saw, I saw, as the preacher opens his eyes and truly observes life under the sun in regards to relationship, what he sees is pain. There are tears because of oppression. And we've all experienced oppression in some way. It could be from parents who shamed you into being the driven and successful person that you are. Some of you have been oppressed by manipulative words, abusive words, even physical acts of violence. You can experience oppression with friends. Think about the power that the in crowd holds over others. I mean, growing up or still today, the pain that someone can experience longing to be in and being kept out by those in power. You can experience oppression at work when a boss holds something over your head. And we cannot talk about oppressive relationships without talking about the major issues of injustice in our country history of slavery within our country and its continued effects of racial segregation seen in the lack of affordable housing, increase in mass incarceration, education and inequity, and many, many other things. And of course, today, the massive amounts of people that are sexually trafficked. 
sex slavery, hundreds of thousands of little girls all around the world who are being lured away into a better life and then chained to beds with one man after another oppressing them. The preacher looked at the real world and saw the tears, that there was no one to wipe them away, that there was no one protecting the vulnerable. If we open our eyes and we observe our world, just read the news, watch the news, the amount of oppression really is unbearable. Two weeks ago, a mother in Arizona sang a song while smothering her three-year-old children. In the Herald Sun just this week, it said the state of North Carolina is one of the worst for babies dying before the age of one, and then it's particularly high among African Americans. The death of children, this type of oppression, it's hard to bear. The saying is true that the smallest coffins are the heaviest. So if we see, if we observe our world and we don't turn a blind eye, we don't try to escape the reality in in some way, we can understand how the preacher lands where he does in verse 2. Look at verse 2. He says, I thought the dead more fortunate. Better is he who has not yet been born. He says, the dead and the unborn are in a better place than everyone who lives life under the sun with all the pain of oppression. That sounds bleak, doesn't it? And if you're a Christian, you might want to call a timeout right here, right? You'd be like, hey, can he say such things? He's supposed to be a teacher of the faith. Yes, he can. And we actually need him to. We've got to open our eyes and see the real world and not bury our heads in the sand and live with some trite, simplistic response to pain and injustice. Relationships are painful because they are oppressive. We also see that relationships are painful because they can be filled with envy. Look at verse 4. It says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. The preacher is observing the world And he sees that the motivating factor behind most people's drive and ambition and hard work is envy of neighbor. Envy, it's it's about getting what others have. Envy is about comparing yourself to someone else. Envy says, if only, if only, and it is a poison that robs you of gratitude. And it leads you to only dwell on what you should have. But envy is a strong motivator. But it's all about me. It's all about you, what you need, what you want. Envy happens as you compare yourself to others. Now let me share where I believe envy can be very deceptive is that I think envy most often happens with close friends. C.S. Lewis said people become close friends because they look around and they say, you too? There's similarities, there's interests, there's commonalities. And so the one thing I've found to be true is that envy rears its head with people I'm closest to, people that I'm like. I'm not envious of Bill Gates. I'm never going to be Bill Gates. I'm envious of friends of mine who are doing things in their churches that we're not doing, guys that work in ways in their churches that he's not in in our church. I'm envious of close friends who have experiences that I may never have or never have had. I'm envious. Right when I look around and see those closest to me and wonder, could I have what they have? So I think we all need to examine our hearts. 
and see where we're comparing ourselves. Right? Are you comparing yourself, particularly with those closest to you, in regards to your grades, right, your majors, with your job, money, your marriages, success? Because envy will creep in and, you, and it will cause you to be consumed with me and it will cause pain as it eats away at your heart and destroys relationships. I love the image of envy in verse 6. It says, two hands toiling, two hands grabbing for more and more and more. That is life lived with me at the center. And the preacher says, beware of how envy leads to two hands of toiling, working hard, manic busyness. But he's also quick to check those who lean towards laziness and says that laziness is a form of me and causes pain in a relationship as well. Look at verse five, five says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Right? The lazy person is turned in on self, folding their hands, does not work, does not carry out their duties. And this too causes pain in relationship because others suffer from one's laziness. When one drops the ball, someone else has to pick it up. If you're lazy at work or you're lazy at home, someone has to play makeup for one's laziness. The burden falls on someone or something. In verses 7 to 8, the preacher gives us this picture of someone who lives with me at the center. It's this extreme picture. It's a picture of a highly successful person who is miserably alone. This person toils and is never satisfied. It says that he obtains riches after riches, fame upon fame, but then looks up at some point in, in life and says, for whom am I toiling? And the answer is no one because you've neglected relationship for the sake of self-promotion and success. The preacher says the end of life, this person will be full of pain and full of regret rather than joy and contentment. The older movie now, The Aviator, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, portrayed, I think, this life well as it depicted Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes was one of the most financially successful people of his time, a great businessman, investor, a pilot. But at the end of his life, DiCaprio portrays this life very well. He, he's all alone, Howard Hughes is, in a, in a dark hotel room, miserably alone, trusting no one, having no one. There's a life lived with me at the center. That's what you get at the very end. I heard Matt Chandler share an illustration around this life lived with me at the center, which destroys relationship. He said, I've never had a girl come into my office in tears and tell me that she hates her dad because he used to drop her off at school in a beat up old Ford. And it was so embarrassing that she was never able to forgive him. And he's never had a girl tell him that she hates her dad because he didn't buy her a pony and didn't send her on the school ski trip. But he's met plenty of young women whose dad had a $60,000 car and could have paid for the whole school to go on the ski trip. Yet these women have not known the love of their father and so have been given a thoroughly warped perception of their own value. Our work hard, manic driven culture can be applauded, but it leads to pain. And it leads to isolation and it causes pain to those we've isolated from, and it causes pain to oneself. Did you know that loneliness uh, is, is becoming an epidemic, uh, a widespread epidemic in our country? Uh, that nearly half of the people in our country 
would report feeling lonely, 46%, which means uh, half of you here this morning have experienced the feeling of loneliness this past week and may even feel deeply alone this morning. And loneliness is not just a social issue, it's a health issue. Reports have been coming out that, that, the, that loneliness has its effects on our physical bodies, that it can impair our immune system, it increases blood pressure, it causes sleep, deprivation, all things which impact the physical heart. Statistical reports have been revealing that there are things that lead to premature early deaths. So for instance, people who've been uh, exposed to air pollution, 5% exposed to air pollution have premature death. People struggling with obesity, 20% of them have premature deaths. People who consume a ton of alcohol, heavily drink, 30% lead to premature deaths. Those who are struggling with loneliness, 45% premature death. Loneliness is an epidemic that causes pain toward others and to oneself. It's why we need a grammatical shift in the way we live our lives. We, not me. We need each other. And so let's look secondly at the joy of we. Not just the pain, but there is joy. Look at verse 9. It says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Two is better than one. Verse 12, and a threefold cord is not easily broken. Now, I've heard some people refer to these verses as like the premier verse for marriage. Right? Two is better than one. And then somebody this past week said, yeah, I've heard someone mention threefold cord. It's just like Holy Spirit with me and my spouse. Right? Threefold cord's not easily. No, that's not what this verse is talking about. This is not talking about marriage. I mean, marriage can be inferred because two become one in marriage, but it, this is not talking about marriage. The preacher is not saying the answer to all our pain is to find a spouse. That's not the answer. In fact, I hope all of you who, this morning who are not married find these verses comforting as well as those who are married find this comforting. What the preacher is saying is that there is strength in numbers. Two is better than one, three better than two. If he were to keep going, he would say four is better than three, five is better than four. Right? The point is we were created for community. We were created for many relationships with each other. In Genesis chapter 2, God said it was not good for man to be alone. So we were created to flourish in this world as we live in relationships. God himself is a relationship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this unending community that is without oppression, without envy, and loneliness. The French existentialist Albert Camus also understood this when he wrote this. Always there comes an hour when one is weary of one's work and devotion to duty. And all one craves for is a loved face, the warmth and wonder of a loving heart. Deep down, that's all we crave, right? Because we know deep down we were made for more than just work. We were made to love and to be loved by others. Look at verses 9 through 12 again, the benefits, the joy of relationship. Verse 9 says, you're more productive when you're with others. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Verse 10, relationships offer help. For if one falls, the other will lift up his fellow, but Woe to him who is all alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Verse 11, relationships offer comfort. 
If two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Verse 12, relationships offer protection. Though a man might prevail against one who's alone, two will withstand him. And verse 12 again, relationships are so good that they need to be multiplied. A threefold cord, four and five and six relationships strengthen our lives. As I look and I observe our world, I see fast-paced lives included. Fast-paced lives and I see lonely people who all wish and long for good friends. I see people who surround themselves with company and they may never be alone and they may claim to know many people but no one really knows them and they don't really know anyone. I see a culture that is socially skilled but is relationally anemic. Conflict arises and we bail on one another. We might be nice to each other's face, but then we'll bite someone in the, uh, behind their back. I see a culture that loves to talk about romance and sex. This is what the front page of People Magazine and Us Weekly, right? Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, they touched each other at the Grammys, right? Are they going to get back together? What's going on with Prince Harry and Meghan? It's all about romantic relationships, but you don't see any reporting on friendship. Nothing about friendship. But Aristotle said, without friends, no one would choose to live, though he had all other goods. That's different from today. In the ancient world, friendship was prized the highest. So here's what I'm saying. We all need spiritual friendships. Two better than one, a threefold cord is not easily broken. We need spiritual friendships because when we see this world, when we observe the world and the oppression and the tears and the lack of protection for those who are vulnerable, we are tempted to want to throw up our hands and say it would be better to not be alive. This is exactly when we need friends. And without spiritual friendships, faith in the real world is hard because there will be times when you might think the dead or the unborn are better off than me. The only way we can make it through the pain of oppression and envy and isolation and loneliness is when we have others come alongside us, they pull us up, and they turn us back to the one who really is the greatest friend, Jesus. See, as Christians, we believe that we have no better friend than Jesus, that the Father was willing to give us his son who would be oppressed, that Jesus would fully labor, not for his own sake, but for the for the glory of the Father and for our good. And then he would be left all alone, deserted by his closest friends, crucified on a cross. So that by faith, we could enter into a relationship with him and gain the greatest friend, one who's well acquainted with the oppressions of this world, what the pain of envy and loneliness and isolation causes. And then Jesus, as we trust him, sets us free he sets us free from the tyranny of me to love others with the love that we've received. See, when we're in a relationship with Jesus, we don't need uh, to live with envy. We can seek the welfare of others. We don't need to isolate, but we can see that one hand of quietness is better than two hands full of toiling. We can be the friend when we see oppression who wipes tears away and seeks to protect the vulnerable. See, in the gospel of Jesus, this is big, there is a grammatical shift that must happen. We 
not me. We, not me. And if we can have that shift within our hearts, it leads to this life where we have one handful of quietness, or you could say contentment. Don't you want to be content? Or true happiness? A life of meaning? Listen to that old saying again, that you're not what you think you are, but what you think you are. I wonder how your life would be different if you asked, how are we doing? Instead of how am I doing? I wonder the impact at your school or at your job if you asked, how are we doing? How would your living situation be different if you asked, how are we doing? How would your marriage be different if you asked, how are we doing? And I wonder how Christ Central Church would look different if every single person here asked, how are we doing? Because in Jesus, our grammar changes, church. We, not me. And it doesn't mean there will not be pain. There will be. But if we know our place under the sun, then we can live knowing we need each other. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would take us out of a self-centered, self-driven, ego-driven life that was so easy to live. God, it's so easy to go there. We're tempted to go there. And Lord, I know in a group this size, the oppression, the pain is very real. The tears shed because of oppression. Envy is very much alive and well within all of our hearts. And we've been recipients of that as well. We are isolated and we're lonely. And so we need you, Jesus, to be the one who comforts us and is with us and is our greatest friend who knows us and walks with us. And then we need you to free us, God, from the tyranny of of ourselves so that we can love each other, need each other, love and be loved. So I pray that you would do that, that this church would be a community full of people honest about the real world and loving one another because we received your love. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.